Good evening, folks, and welcome to XITN, the brightest spot on your radio dial for adventures with... James to explain that, but before he does, there is a correction Wally Woo insists I bring to your attention. In his comparison of parallel expressions in the New Testament and Tao Te Ching, his glasses fogged up. The proper source for the expression, they that take the sword shall perish by the sword, is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. Now, James, you promised you'd share more narratives of individuals talking about their personal spiritual encounters. Right, Fred. There's a third narrative I'd like to share. It reflects the frequent occurrence of irresolvable paradoxes within one's own values. Here's a woman who rejects the reality of God from her faith tradition in a desire to accept all religions. Now, getting rid of one particular concept of God in the midst of searching for religious meaning is not uncommon. In her case, the absence of a transcendent source of meaning in her life is replaced by turning towards a pervasive yet undefined sense of meaning and purpose in human culture. The woman was in her mid-fifties, Jewish, with children. Rachel, perhaps you could read this account. Very well. When my children were growing up, we felt they needed the Hebrew background. I was very active in religious activities when my daughters were young, but as I got older, I tired of it. When we were in our early 50s, we decided we had had enough. I felt my children needed religion more for a sense of identity. It really wasn't a sense of, you must follow your own religion. Both my daughters did attend Hebrew school growing up, and we had a bas mitzvah. But religion plays very little role in my life right now, except that we would never deny our Judaism. We feel we are Jews deep down. But I genuinely want to be able to accept all religions, all people. Lately, I've come to more or less realize there is no God. 
I don't believe that God would allow all these terrible things to happen if he could control it. So I really lost my feeling that there is a God. I struggle with this because the idea that there is a God is ingrained in me. It's sad that really I don't have any feelings about religion. I mean, I was brought up to be religious, but I really don't have any feelings about it. Yes, I have seen this position more and more often. I don't know what to say to a person who simply doesn't feel the presence of God. After the Holocaust, we all faced the unanswerable dilemma of how the God of Israel could let such a thing happen to his people. But some people refused to give up their Jewishness. After all, that is what connects their family to its past. Their identity doesn't go away easily. There are so many personal narratives, each one more interesting than the last. In one account, a young man was drawn to physical objects in nature as sources of meaning. These are living, natural objects experienced in highly visceral ways. A, a tree suddenly seen for the first time producing feelings of joy, a, a basis for feeling connected to the universe as a whole. Like Einstein's sense of where, as he said, one feels as if one is dissolved and merged into nature. Others are idiosyncratic, where quite unique interpretations of events and objects prompt a significant life reorientation. One woman in her mid-40s on the way to California stopped in Texas. There was a parade where people were dressed up as Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. This was a place she could embrace and celebrate, and she became a park ranger. The job took her to desert locations. One place with three times sculpted rocks resembled turtles, symbolizing her feeling being an earth mother with two smaller rocks as her children. She lived in a very spiritual universe. In one dream, she was looking at the moon that turned into a ball of electric energy. As she reached to touch it, she was shot out of the earth into space to watch an asteroid shot down into the ocean. A voice in space told her the asteroid was because humans were destroying the planet. Tidal waves covered the land. She could see dolphins swimming and jumping in the water and heard them squeaking, it's our turn now, it's our turn now, over and over. Well, for stories like those, your term theology seems to include very different structures of meaning. Not a specific concept of God, or even any concept of God at all. Although I guess it doesn't exclude one. But we also see how a theology evolves over time, like a living language. Right, Fred. In fact, the natural evolution of any concept of God implies that the concept should not be treated as inherently meaningless. At the same time, one faces a very diverse collection of attributes applied to the concept, even contradictory. But it is the particular experience of individuals, their hopes, needs, aspirations, limitations of intellect, that all play a role in what can be attributed to God. 
So to help us understand what it means to hold a concept of God, both across historical faith traditions and for individuals, the author introduces the idea of conceptual models. A conceptual model is a way of representing phenomena. It looks at some environment of consciousness as a system in which attributes of one system may be compared with another. A model reflects under what circumstances another person might see and interpret phenomena as they appear to you. It can be some physical locale, a temporal event, emotions related to those experiences, even an abstract concept or an imaginary one. How you see any object of consciousness as compared to how I see it. What are the relevant set of factors? Relevant set of factors includes features of mutual interest. One use of conceptual models, for example, arose in applying ethical concerns to engineering, where it was necessary to deal with competing values in considering the impact of engineering the relationship of human and natural environments. Suppose we're creating a plan for transportation in a city neighborhood after a natural disaster. We consider factors such as equitable access to the system, changes in location of places of employment, the cost of reconstructing infrastructure, where people live, and so forth. Ethical concerns enter when we think of how citizens must interact with that environment in order to function, to successfully use it in ways consistent with values of quality of life. Citizens needn't know how electrons travel through electrical wires to light streets or drive trolleys, but they must have some model in mind so they can depend on areas of the city being lit and count on when trolleys are running and available. Especially in post-disaster planning, a conceptual model requires collaboration across governmental agencies, engineering firms, business interests, construction outfits, neighborhood associations, and citizens based on a shared reality. Now, if you and I are comparing what we mean when we speak of God, factors of mutual interest might include when the concept first arose in our experience, what was its association with others in the community, what organized groups or institutions used the concept, how it impacted or directed our behaviors, what things might we think were okay or not okay to do, where the concept sat in our own hierarchy of values. Did others' use of the concept square with our experience, our family histories? How many attributes a conceptual model might consider is limited by what can be reasonably compared. And so, not at such a level of granularity where meaningful assessments become unwieldy. The purpose of the conceptual model is to help people compare and understand their shared interest in what the model represents. So a conceptual model is something that is built. It is an intention of design as a computer network, as a system that people must use. A system of religious belief 
even if rudimentary or highly individualized, is also something that must be used. Now, for some, this might imply religious belief is something invented. I think that is not the case, that there is some antecedent perception people have of their most fundamental relationship to the environment around them, both natural and cultural, out of which religious meaning emerges. Nevertheless, given that, a system of belief must be built because beliefs must be shared, shared amidst evolving and changing conditions of belief, shared in order to be used. But the continual evolution of religious beliefs is a critical factor that impacts the degree of consistency in religious conceptual models. All models must accommodate change. But when change results in being forced to give up fundamental premises, you have what Thomas Kuhn referred to as a revolution in thinking, where one is forced to think of reality in an entirely new way. Perusing history, a case could be made that the early appearance of multiple sects and competing schools of theology after some initial revelation or religious claim is reason why many institutional religions have failed to remain consistent over time. New Testament scholar Helmut Kester has shown Christianity did not even start out as a unified movement. There were different criteria for what it meant to be a believer, what rituals should be, what they should think about Jesus. Paul's concern with the church in Corinth, for example, taking pride in tolerating incest, or thinking the mark of true belief was itself guaranteed by performing gifts of the Spirit. Glossolalia without intelligible prophecy, Paul thought, could produce chaos. In Islam, divisions about succession after Muhammad's death quickly led to Sunni and Shia sectarianism. The Buddhist teaching fragmented into Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, and more recently, Dalit-Navayana branches. The Hindu tradition embraces Vaishnava, Shaiva, Shakta, Smarta adherents. Of course, individual beliefs containing secular values change even more rapidly. Can any system of belief achieve consistency given multiple perceptions of reality? So even shared conceptual models are time and culture dependent. In historically early cultures, for example, people living in certain regions shared economic ways of life, limited mobility, customs common to agriculture and husbandry. Their ways of life might appear very strange to us, but they would make perfect sense to those who shared it. Consider a Canaanite late bronze village settlement. To us, it would seem to lack rational organization, consisting of densely packed houses hidden behind featureless courtyard walls, with streets and alleys leading nowhere, a maze of blind alleys and cul-de-sacs. To insiders, however, it would represent a clear map of kinship groups. The order of space would have not been derived from external principles of town planning, but from internal social organization. 
Space was based on patriarchal families and larger kinship units. What looked like chaos to us would make great sense to those who belonged there, including the consequence of buildings having no separate barns or stables. Oxen, donkeys, cattle, sheep were stabled in the ground floor of houses. And with no toilets, indoors or out, it was convenient for upstairs inhabitants to relieve themselves during the night into the stables below. A morning chore would be to use wooden forks to scoop out the straw bedding, saturated with urine and manure, carry them out to a pile, form them into round or square cakes, dry them in the sun like bricks, and later use them as fuel for heating and cooking. One way to think about conceptual models that reveals underlying social and ethical dimensions of human interaction with systems is to recall the 1958 lithograph Belvedere by Dutch graphic artist M.C. Escher. Depicted are three stories of a possibly larger dome structure with columned open galleries connected by ladders and steps and inhabited by a number of people. It is not only an interesting picture, but it also encapsulates a lot regarding the way designs are both conceived and perceived. This is the idea that one can create something that has consistency locally, but globally makes no sense. The design of Belvedere has a fundamental inconsistency. All the pieces make sense, but not the whole. If one looks around in the picture, what person in the picture really knows the extent of the problem? No one, really. The gesture being made by the person on the ladder might raise some suspicions. The youth down below with his puzzle that doesn't make any sense. He may be wondering what sort of world he is in, in which he has a cube that doesn't work right. But none of these people is really aware of the degree to which the entire world doesn't make sense. Belvedere illustrates the fact that humans build systems, including environments of human habitation and systems of belief, very much like this. Multiple people work on their individual pieces of a system. Those pieces come together at various points. They must work together interface with adjacent pieces. But in many belief systems, against what might make sense locally, the system as a whole ends up being just like Belvedere. The overall system doesn't make sense. These problems make the system unusable, even nonsensical. In belief systems, there are lots of people, shamans, tribal leaders, local parish priests, rabbis, bishops, theologians, popes, ayatollahs, who all work on their individual pieces of a community of belief. The system may define the origins of society, perhaps what its ultimate values and moral behaviors ought to be. Pieces may come together at various points, but the whole system often ends up just not making sense. 
This is especially the case when individuals within a community of belief begin to think about the values of the belief system in relation to their own personal experience and the lives of their families, or when individuals in one belief system are subject to the scrutiny of individuals from other cultures, other belief systems. The likelihood of questioning what ultimately makes sense arises even more strongly. In real life, the consequences can be devastating. In the lived environment of Orleans Parish, for example, the levee and hurricane protection system post-Katrina was criticized in the IPET report and elsewhere for not functioning as a coherent system, for failing as a whole. In fact, other systems within New Orleans' urban environment were accused of similar failings. Its system of public housing, healthcare, its public school system, its system of city government itself, for belief systems, it may be the failure of the church to be a true prophetic voice against the evils of injustice, intolerance, and political oppression in society. It may be a failure to perceive the reality of cultural and religious genocide, or perhaps even be an agent supporting it. Therefore, for any system involving the environment of lived experience, whether it be a place of habitation and work or a system of ultimate values and meaning, the functional designers of such systems must build them with the individual's lived experiences in mind, including the inherent change, evolution, conflict, and paradoxes those experiences embody. When the system is a reflection of only the designer's mind, rather than the individuals as well, the consequence is a world that ceases to make sense in the way that, from the viewer's perspective, Belvedere is a nightmare. So there is clearly an underlying moral dimension here. Engineering design carries a responsibility to, an obligation to the users of that design. Similarly, what matters in a system of belief is ultimately not the priest's or the theologian's point of view, but whether the system can make sense from the believer's point of view, cognitively, culturally. Can the system be used? Can it be lived in? Can it be appropriated by believers for some religiously shared purpose? Is belief confirmed by religious users whose voices are necessarily independent of particular claims a belief system makes, even for revelation that arises from sources metaphysically superior and distant. At some point, the conceptual model must be meaningful, humane, even when reality isn't. Evidence of disjunction between the conceptual model of a system of religious belief and the believer's point of view is the frequency with which many former believers leave their churches, seeking spiritual refuge in syncretistic, quasi-religious entities or cults or in purely secular ethical values. This is more than believers reaching the limits of doctrinal tolerance within their faith traditions. It is believers feeling a false conceptual model of their own faith 
has been forced upon them. The tension between system and individual is manifest when considering conceptual models as a form of language. Natural languages are dynamic, evolving, living entities, continually in a process of change. Systems of religious expression similarly undergo continual modification, change, and renewal. Well, implication number one of this is that it is not only possible, but necessary to design the way people will think about a system, because the use of conceptual models is itself a natural occurrence. Human beings are natural model builders. People develop models for things they use, whether designed or not. So the question then becomes, what are the vehicles of exchange between designer and user? Well, the most immediate is natural language itself. I have an idea in my head, something that makes sense, and I utter a sentence expressing that idea to you. Then you form an idea in your head and perhaps acknowledge what has been said. Then we go on in a mode of mutual collaboration. That's one idea of how communication takes place. In that model, the sentence is the physical realization of the idea in the head. The sentence isn't the idea itself, but serves as a way to get an idea formed in one's head into another's head. Or, if you're a behaviorist, not into their head, but capable of producing expected behavior in the other person, behavior presumably desired. Implication number two, like personal narratives, conceptual models tell a story. They build an actionable myth. They provide a scenario for how to behave, how to perform certain tasks, what is acceptable behavior and what is not what to use in solving problems, what are the boundaries of expectations in interpersonal relations, and perhaps most important, who or what to acknowledge as authority. Final authority, as a successful story or one that communicates clearly, a successful conceptual model will build a consistent myth. Where do conceptual models stand in institutional religion as rational, intentionally structured systems of belief? We say intentionally structured, acknowledging most religious beliefs begin growing organically based on how a culture perceives its most fundamental relation to the surrounding environment, to the world, but also recognizing some beliefs are thrust into the world as a result of the revelation or spiritual experience given to one special prophet. But in either case, there is considerable conceptual massaging of the original perceptions or of an initial revelatory experience. One naturally hopes for religious conceptual model to reflect a consistent explanatory myth as presented in the events the tradition canonizes in scripture elaborates in theological apologetics, in acts and ritual. Judaism's central myth, for example, involves the people called to God, evidenced by Yahweh's action in human history, releasing his people from bondage in Egypt, 
and formed in the Mosaic Covenant, defining the proper relation of the individual to God. Yes, Rachel. You might be surprised that many Jews would say religion itself is not central to their lives, but you are right in emphasizing Jewish identity. Remembering how Jewish identity was formed in history and continued in tradition, and leading a moral and ethical life along with intellectual curiosity. Thank you, Rachel. Now, Christianity begins with the picture of a fallen humanity in need of salvation. The salvific process is accomplished through divine power. In this case, an entity equally God and man who atones for human sinfulness. Identifying the atoning power with the original creator creates a redemptive circle in which believers look forward to an eschatological culmination of history and a future judgment that determines humanity's reconciliation with its loving creator. Absent a single divine agent of salvation, Islam shares a somewhat similar myth, but one more focused on ritual discipline and accounting up of rewards and punishments for individual deeds done or not done, for religious obligations honored. Buddhism's relatively coherent myth begins with acknowledging the experience of life as dukkha, and then by eliminating any external agent of salvation altogether, makes the goal of salvation, nirvana, self-extinction, rely on the individual alone, one who follows the Eightfold Path, adding to the myth that the truly compassionate, on the verge of achieving nirvana, willingly returns to the world of samsara to help others. Challenges to the conceptual model of institutional religions are generally more a matter of denying an essential premise than of showing the faulty logic of what follows from it. In the case of Judaism, it would be the denial of a God who acts in history, especially post-Holocaust, or rejecting historical evidence for any figure like Moses having led the Israelites out of Egypt. It might include the inaccuracy of thinking Israelites constituted a coherent group within Canaanite culture. Many, like German Egyptologist Jan Osman, argue it cannot be known if Moses ever lived since there are no traces of him outside tradition. And according to the official Torah commentary for conservative Judaism, it is irrelevant if the historical Moses existed. It still regards him as a folklorist national hero whose prophecy is true. So denying that part of your premise seems not to matter for many Jews. Yes, but you could say making that premise irrelevant is also one step towards a secular Judaism, ethics without Moses, or the deeper question of the meaningfulness of a traditional concept of God is no longer of interest. Yeah, but Osman takes the extreme view of claiming Hebrew scripture codified exclusive monotheism as religiously true against a religiously false polytheism of competing deities. This religious intolerance, he says, ignited new levels of violence among nations. He argues that by creating an absolutist faith based on strict observance of the laws of 
only one God, political opponents were turned into idol-worshipping theological adversaries who had to be decimated. But Osman simply ignores Israel's self-perception as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation dedicated to the moral acceptance and love of neighbors and strangers, as in Leviticus chapter 19. That fanned the flames of anti-Semitism and pissed off a lot of Jews and Old Testament scholars. Understood. On the other hand, Osman's notion of memo history suggests that from a cultural point of view, the way history is remembered is more important than the way it really was. That argument makes cultural memory as an imaginative reinvention of tradition what's really important in people's lives in religion as lived, as you have put it. Of course, Osman was also interested in rescuing Egypt from being a symbol of soulless worldly corruption. The flesh pots of Egypt as in attributions of ancient Jewish literature. Well, we will soon see there are many quite different conceptual models of what concepts of God might mean that make a claim on us which forces recognition of the validity of asking the question what it means to hold such a concept, since this concept seems not quite ready to shed its meaningfulness. Anyway, in the case of Christianity, a challenge to its conceptual model might be the denial that there is any such thing as a transmission of sin from some original state of human sinfulness and it may find flatly contradictory the claim of any entity to be fully God, fully man, or a non-interesting contradiction at least, and it well might repudiate the reality of any final divine judgment. In the case of Islam, one may find the inability to accept inconsistencies within the Quran or the consequences of being in the wrong school of legal interpretation about Muhammad's proper successors, or finding the picture of heavenly rewards fanciful, or the result of acts inconsistent with human morality. In the case of Buddhism, it could be the denial that life is primarily dukkha, or finding the idea of a human self persists even while denying it, or the unavailability of a clear account of nirvana. Once accepting a religion's essential premises, however, there appears to be some degree of internal consistency. That is, if the continued presence of today's major institutional religions counts for anything. But recognizing that institutional religions evolve organically, that they are impacted by historical events, actual and imagined, or by events that occur in the life and death of individuals, real or mythologized, means that new interpretations of historical events, as well as the unknown consequences of future events and cultural change, always represent the potential for previously consistent conceptual models to be radically altered, even destroyed. The assassination or the ethical failings of an evangelical leader affect the religious tradition's overarching myth in unpredictable ways. And there always lurks the impact of external natural events, 
Black Death, for example, shocked the 14th century Catholic Church, resulting in laity's loss of confidence in clergy leadership and was expressed in the flagellant movement of self-mortification as a response to plague, famine, and fear. In the case of Judaism's predominant myth, one can argue it evolved considerably over time and was impacted by reinterpretations of older covenantal events, the story of Abraham, the flood and Joachim covenant, the constructed story of Exodus. But the need for consistency is persistent, even if the reality of those events remains in the shadows of uncertain history, the question of empirical evidence for their belief is replaced by the force of tradition. For many historical religions, there is continual tension between history and tradition. But where the premises of the conceptual model are not denied, tradition appears to win out. For non-institutional religion, individualized religion, one naturally expects far more idiosyncratic conceptual models to appear, or overarching mythic narratives that have been highly influenced by particular life experiences, including negative experience with institutional religion. It is the texture of the perceived experience of disease, divorce, trauma, death, and other critical events that directly impact how an individual shapes their values into a personal myth. Religious heterogeneity increasingly characterizes families in a multicultural world. Some individuals are raised in a complete religious vacuum, but even when not, exposure to religious complexity becomes a dilemma in families, say, deciding how to raise their children. The mother, a Haitian evangelical Pentecostal Christian, and the father, an Arab non-practicing Muslim, an example I know, an individual's interactions with multiple religious myths affects the evolution of their own. So an individual's conceptual model of God, even when primarily derived from their own personal experience, is rarely a story of one. A non-familial role model may influence values carried forward through the rest of one's life. Contrarywise, so may the narrative of an individual traumatized by abuse. It may generate a reactive myth as a negative response to chaotic experience, or a myth that simply replaces one chaos with another. Perceptions of religious belief within society change. Think of the meaning of mainstream Protestant Catholic Jew shortly after World War II. Protestant churches filled with young families of baby boomers serving as country clubs, youth basketball teams for interchurch competition, or Catholic churches coalescing new immigrant ethnic communities from Eastern Europe, or synagogues giving identity to Jewish enclaves for the first time then consider mainstream today. Protestant churches emptied of members, children not returning to active church life, the limited role of women and pedophilia tearing Catholic churches apart, Judaism moving closer to 
ethnic secular identity than religious faith, and enormous change from outside the three previously predominant faiths, Buddhists from Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Hindus from India, East Africa, Trinidad, Muslims from the Middle East, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Nigeria, Sikhs and Jains and Zoroastrians from India and Iran, syncretistic African traditions from the Caribbean, Santeria, Regla de Ocho, and Chango, first arriving with slavery, then via Cuba and the Dominican, Jews from Russia, Ukraine, Haitian evangelicals and Spanish-speaking evangelicals from Ecuador and Central America. America is now the most religiously plural nation on earth. James, I'm going to end with the mythic story the manuscript invites us to imagine. Travelers came to a strange country where they tried to make sense of utterances inhabitants made about things that mattered to them. The travelers observed rituals people performed and were taken to model values that were shared, acts designed to reinforce their meanings. The travelers tried to use the language of the country based on explanations given to them. God loves us the inhabitants said, because he created us all. Why do we value life above all else? Because every life is sacred. Each person is equally entitled to life, and so on. These things were said amidst battles raging in many places throughout the country. It was not as if the travelers entered the country without models of their own. In values the travelers found ultimate and meaningful beyond all others, they noticed many expressions used in the country sounded familiar. Some words were even the same as the traveler's own. Yet soon the travelers found it necessary to guess at how the meanings of words used by inhabitants of the country were applied. Sometimes their guesses were right, more often they were wrong. What the travelers expected stood in sharp contrast to what actually happened in the country. It was as if things the travelers said and did were decoupled from the meanings of words they used. The word for a value applied to one thing directly contradicted its application to another thing that seemed exactly the same. Sacred was applied to all life. Yet those of selected characteristics were subject to attack in battles, and different sides chose different favored characteristics. Once the travelers witnessed a celebration of their devotion, in which was recounted a story of a man who planned a great banquet. The man insisted everyone be invited, regardless of rank or status in society. Their presence should be welcomed at the table. This modeled equality for how people were to act. It was therefore troubling to find inhabitants of certain characteristics not welcomed at the tables of others, or allowed at their schools, or given permission to drink from certain fountains. How was sacred applied to all, comparing some people trying again and again to conceive a child, while others readily dispatching conceived children not wanting. How were the criteria for wanting and not wanting applied? 
It was as if the travelers who entered a country that seemed familiar then found they did not know their way about. Perhaps it was people not meaning the same things by the words they said. Yet the language was the same. The words they used were the same. It was as if the models in their heads for using those words were entirely different, as if each had their own private picture of what those words ultimately referred to. Stay tuned, because next episode, the fireworks begins.